Well, it's all over you. Well, you know who's headlining at Cobb's Comedy Club on Sunday? Who? Who? Mark Neuer. Oh, fucking oh, Mark. Wow. Oh, my God. I hear he's the best of the worst. He gives you the business, y'all. Yeah, it's Mark Neuer on Cobb's Comedy Club Sunday, August 13th. At 7.30 p.m. Peace come and come all. Don't miss your chance to see Mark Neuer headlining the best of the worst Sunday, August 13th at 7.30 p.m. at Cobb's Comedy Club, 915 Columbus Avenue, San Francisco, hosted by Emily Rudolph and featuring Ernest Evangelista, Honiton Ortiz, the legendary front office, and the one and only Spencer Devine. Get your tickets online now at CobbsComedy.com. Remember, there are more at the door. And get ready to get served the business. Side effects may include acid reflux, black lung, black foot, IBS, and free. Hey, everybody. Uh, big apologies for last week if you were listening. Had a nervous breakdown. It happens. Uh, Latoya, the sheriff of truth, might be coming and might be calling in. We'll see. But all the stuff I was freaking out about last week, it got done, as everything does. But usually, I have to have a nervous breakdown before things actually happen. Now I have to figure out, there's over 100 comics in the festival, and I'm scheduling them in all these shows. And I just didn't know how to get communicate with them to get their schedules. Anyways, it's a huge, like, administration mindfuck. And I did it. I, it's okay. I got out of it alive. I did get some weird allergic reaction to something, though, and my face is all puffy. And dear God, I hope it's not shingles. Could you imagine? Oh, I need to look up that on the, on the Internet. Anyways, let's talk about shingles today. Uh, again, I hope that the Sheriff of the Truth is calling in. And I do want to just look this up real quick because I, I thought about it and I was like, there's no way. I know it's a form of herpes. Here we go. Shingles. Shingles, also called herpesoster. Let me give you some music. Hell yeah, I'm so old I need my glasses. Okay, it doesn't look like this. Also called herpes zoster, a reactivation of the chickenpox virus in the body causing a painful rash. Anyone who's had chickenpox may develop shingles. It isn't known what reactivates the virus. You know what's funny is I don't think I've ever had chickenpox. Uh, diagnosis, stages, effects. Let's check effects. Oh, no, that's too many effects. I want like, okay, triggers. What triggers shingles? Shingles is called caused by varicella zoster virus, ZV, VZV, the same virus that causes chickenpox. Once a person has chickenpox, the virus stays in their body. The virus can reactivate later in life and cause shingles. Most people who develop shingles only have it one time during their life. Chickenpox is herpes. It's a herpes that kills you. This is wild. Wow. Okay, so I, that's not what I have. This rash that they're showing on the internet is nothing like what's on my face. Um, it's barely, you can barely see it on my eyes, but it's, it's on my eyes. Anyway. Let's see. Let's look up chicken pox. Chicken pox. Chicken picks, chicken pox. Here we go. A highly, highly contagious viral skin infection. 
causing an itchy, blister-like rash on the skin. Chickenpox is highly contagious to those who haven't had the disease or been vaccinated against it. I've been vaccinated. Jesus Christ. How it spreads. Airborne, airborne respiratory droplets, saliva, skin-to-skin contact, touching contaminated surfaces, mother-to-baby, pregnancy, labor, or nerve, blah, blah, blah. Effects. What happens when you get chickenpox? The classic symptoms of chickenpox is a rash that turns to an itchy, fluid-filled blister, eventually turning into scabs. The rash may first show up on the chest, back, and face, and then spread over the entire body, including the inside of the mouth, eyelids, or genital area. Fantastic. All right. Well, I don't have that. Thank God. <laughs> uh, I hope that Latoya, the chair for truth, is coming in. Uh, I'll be playing some music in between. We'll see what happens today. I, I don't know what's going on. Justin Clark. Someone put, somebody blessed us with some CDs. Dear God, this is exciting. It's actually about God, which is even better, I think. This is a huge series called The History of God with Karen Armstrong. I mean, I have no idea what this is going to be, but I'm excited. It's like six CDs. I have no idea whence, from whence it came. Uh... Karen Armstrong, CD1, the 4,000-year quest for Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I'm so in. Here we go. Thanks, Karen. Karen, tell us about God. Perfect. Uh, You're listening to Mutiny Radio. We'll be back with more stuff. Come check us out tonight at OMG, tomorrow at Mars Bar, Thursday at Bar on Dolores, Friday back here, Saturday Atlas, Sunday. Barbary Coast, Dank Side of Comedy. It's seven days a week, friends. We got free comedy for you because socialists care about your mental well-being. Harper Audio presents A History of God, written and read by Karen Armstrong. In the beginning, human beings created a God who was the first cause of all things and ruler of heaven and earth. He wasn't represented by images and had no temple or priests in his service. He was too exalted for an inadequate human cult. Gradually, he faded from the consciousness of his people. Eventually, he was said to have disappeared. That, at least, is one theory, popularized by Father Wilhelm Schmidt, in The Origin of the Idea of God, first published in 1912. Schmidt suggested that there had been a primitive monotheism before men and women had started to worship a number of gods. Originally, they had acknowledged only one supreme deity, who had created the world and governed human affairs from afar. In ancient times, the high god, or sky god, 
was replaced by the pagan pantheons. In the beginning, therefore, there was one God. If this is so, then monotheism was one of the earliest ideas evolved by human beings to explain the mystery and tragedy of life. It also indicates some of the problems that such a deity might have to face. There have been many theories about the origin of religion, yet it seems that creating gods is something that human beings have always done. When one religious idea ceases to work for them, it's simply replaced, like the sky god, with no great fanfare. In our own day, many people would say that the god worshipped for centuries by Jews, Christians and Muslims has become as remote as the sky god. Some have actually claimed that he has died. Certainly, he seems to be disappearing from the lives of people, especially in Western Europe. They speak of a God-shaped hole in their consciousness, where he used to be. To understand what we are losing, if that is he really is disappearing, we need to see what people were doing when they began to worship this God, what he meant and how he was conceived. To do that, we need to go back to the ancient world of the Middle East, about 14,000 years ago. One of the reasons why religion seems irrelevant today is that many of us no longer have the sense that we are surrounded by the unseen. We have, as it were, edited out the sense of the spiritual or the holy, which was once an essential component of our experience of the world. Rudolf Otto, the German historian of religion who published his important book The Idea of the Holy in 1917, believed that this sense of the numinous was basic to religion. It preceded any desire to explain the origin of the world or to find a basis for ethical behavior. When people began to devise their myths and worship their gods, they were not seeking a literal explanation for natural phenomena. The symbolic stories, cave paintings and carvings were an attempt to express their wonder and to link this pervasive mystery with their own lives. In the Paleolithic period, for example, when agriculture was developing, the cult of the mother goddess expressed a sense that the fertility which was transforming human life was actually sacred. The great mother remained imaginatively important for centuries. Like the old sky god, she was absorbed into later pantheons. She was usually one of the most powerful of the gods, certainly more powerful than the sky god. She was called Inanna in ancient Sumeria, Ishtar in Babylon, Anat in Canaan, Isis in Egypt, and Aphrodite in Greece. And remarkably similar stories were devised in all these cultures to express her role in the spiritual lives of the people. These myths were metaphorical attempts to describe reality. These dramatic and evocative stories of gods and goddesses helped people to articulate their sense of the powerful but unseen forces that surrounded them. Indeed, it seems that in the ancient world, people believed that it was only by participating in this divine life that they would become truly human. Earthly life was obviously fragile, but if men and women imitated the gods, they would share to some degree their greater power. Thus, it was said that the gods had shown men how to build their cities and temples, copies of homes in the divine realm. The sacred world of the gods, as recounted in myth, was the prototype of human existence. It was the original pattern on which our life here below had been modelled.
everything on Earth was thus believed to be a replica of something in the divine world, a perception that informed the mythology, ritual and social organisation of most of the cultures of antiquity. The imitation of God is still an important religious notion. Resting on the Sabbath or washing somebody's feet on Monday Thursday, actions that are meaningless in themselves, are now significant and sacred because people believed that they were once performed by God. A similar spirituality had characterized the ancient world of Mesopotamia. The Tigris-Euphrates Valley, in what is now Iraq, had been inhabited as early as 4000 BCE, that is, before the Common Era, by the Sumerians, who had established one of the first great cultures of the Oikumene, the civilized world. In their cities, the Sumerians devised their cuneiform script, built the extraordinary temple towers called ziggurats, and evolved an impressive lore, literature, and mythology. This Babylonian tradition also affected the mythology and religion of Canaan, which would become the promised land of the ancient Israelites. Like other people in the ancient world, the Babylonians attributed their cultural achievements to the gods who had revealed their own lifestyle. Thus, Babylon itself was supposed to be an image of heaven, with each of its temples a replica of a celestial palace. This link with the divine world was celebrated annually in the great New Year festival during April. A scapegoat was killed to cancel the old dying year. The public humiliation of the king and the enthronement of a carnival king reproduced the original chaos. A mock battle reenacted the struggle of the gods. These symbolic actions thus had a sacramental value. They enabled the people of Babylon to immerse themselves in the sacred power, or mana, on which their own great civilization depended. On the afternoon of the fourth day of the festival, priests and choristers filed into the Holy of Holies to recite the Enuma Elish, the epic poem which celebrated the victory of the gods over chaos. A brief look at the Enuma Elish gives us some insight into the spirituality which gave birth to our own creator god centuries later. The story begins with the creation of the gods themselves, a theme which, as we shall see, would be very important in Jewish and Muslim mysticism. In the beginning, said the Enuma Elish, the gods emerged from a formless watery waste. Apsu, identified with the sweet waters of the rivers, his wife, Tiamat, the salty sea, and Mumu, the womb of chaos. Consequently, a succession of other gods emerged from them in a process known as emanation, which would become very important in the history of our own god. The new gods emerged in pairs, each of which had acquired a greater definition than the last. But creation had only just begun. The forces of chaos could be held at bay only by means of a painful and incessant struggle. The younger dynamic gods rose up against their parents. Marduk, the sun god, eventually stood over Tiamat's vast corpse and decided to create a new world. Finally, almost as an afterthought, Marduk created humanity by mixing divine blood with dust. The first man, therefore, shared the divine nature in however limited a way. The pagan vision was holistic. 
the gods were not shut off from the human race. Divinity was not essentially different from humanity. There was thus no need for a special revelation or for a divine law to descend to earth from on high. This holistic vision was common in the ancient world. Men were not slavishly imitating the gods as hopelessly distant beings, but living up to the potential of their own essentially divine nature. The myth of Marduk and Tiamat seems to have influenced the people of Canaan, who told a very similar story about Baal-Habad, the god of storm and fertility, who's often mentioned in extremely unflattering terms in the Bible. But Baal undergoes a reversal. He dies and has to descend to the world of Mot, the god of death and sterility. When he hears of his son's fate, the high god, El, comes down from his throne, but he cannot redeem his son. It is Anat, Baal's lover and sister, who goes in search of her twin soul. When she finds his body, she seizes Mot and grinds him like corn before sowing him in the ground. Similar stories are told about the other great goddesses, Inanna, Ishtar and Isis, who search for the dead god and bring new life to the soil. Baal is brought back to life and restored to Anat. This apotheosis of wholeness and harmony, symbolized by the union of the sexes, was celebrated by means of ritual sex. The death of a god, the quest of the goddess, and the triumphant return to the divine sphere were constant religious themes in many cultures and would recur in the religion of the one god worshipped by Jews, Christians, and Muslims. This religion is attributed in the Bible to Abraham, who left Ur in Mesopotamia and eventually settled in Canaan, sometime between the 20th and 19th centuries BCE. Scholars think that he may have been one of the wandering chieftains who had led their people from Mesopotamia towards the Mediterranean at the end of the 3rd millennium BCE. These wanderers spoke West Semitic languages, of which Hebrew is one. The stories about Abraham in the book of Genesis describe his frequent conflicts with the authorities of Canaan. Eventually, when his wife Sarah died, Abraham bought land in Hebron, now on the West Bank. The Genesis account of Abraham and his immediate descendants may indicate that there were three main waves of early Hebrew settlement in Canaan, the modern Israel. One was associated with Abraham and Hebron, and took place in about 1850 BCE. A second wave of immigration was linked with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, a name which means, may God show his strength. He settled in Shechem, which is now the Arab town of Nablus on the West Bank. The Bible tells us that Jacob's sons, who became the ancestors of the 12 tribes of Israel, emigrated to Egypt during a severe famine in Canaan. The third wave of Hebrew settlement occurred in about 1200 BCE, when descendants of Abraham arrived in Canaan from Egypt. They said that they'd been enslaved by the Egyptians, but had been liberated by a deity called Yahweh, the god of their leader, Moses. After they had forced their way into Canaan, they allied themselves with the Hebrews there and became known as the people of Israel. The biblical account was written down centuries later, in about the 8th century BCE. During the 19th century, 
some German biblical scholars developed a critical method which discerned four different sources in the first five books of the Bible. These were collated into what we know as the Pentateuch during the 5th century BCE. This form of criticism explains why there are two quite different accounts of key biblical events and why the Bible sometimes contradicts itself. The two earliest biblical authors, whose work is found in Genesis and Exodus, were probably writing during the 8th century. One is known as J because he calls his god Yahweh, the other E since he prefers the more formal divine title Elohim. By the 8th century, the Israelites had divided Canaan into two separate kingdoms. J was writing in the southern kingdom of Judah, while E came from the northern kingdom of Israel. Later, we'll discuss the other two sources of the Pentateuch, the Deuteronomist, who is known as D, and the Priestly, or P, accounts of the ancient history of Israel. We shall see that in many respects, both J and E shared the religious perspectives of their neighbours, but their accounts do show that by the 8th century BCE, the Israelites were beginning to develop a distinct vision of their own. J, for example, starts his history of God with an account of the creation which is startlingly perfunctory. Yahweh God fashioned man, or Adam, of dust from the soil, Adama. Then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and thus man became a living being. This was an entirely new departure. Instead of concentrating on the creation and on the prehistoric period, like his pagan contemporaries, Jay is more interested in ordinary historical time. There would be no real interest in creation in Israel until the 6th century BCE, when the author whom we call P wrote his majestic account in what is now the first chapter of Genesis. Most noticeable, however, is Jay's perception of a certain distinction between man and the divine. Instead of being composed of the same divine stuff as his god, man, or Adam, as the pun indicates, belongs to the earth, or Adama. Jay does not dismiss mundane history as profane and insubstantial compared with the sacred primordial time of the gods. He hurries through the events of prehistory until he arrives at the start of the history of the people of Israel. This begins abruptly in chapter 12, when the man Abram, who will later be renamed Abraham, or father of a multitude, is commanded by Yahweh to leave his family in Haran, in what is now eastern Turkey, and migrate to Canaan. Yahweh tells Abraham that he has a special destiny, he will, become, he will become the father of a mighty nation, and one day his descendants and of Canaan as their own. Jay's account of the call of Abraham sets the tone for the future history of this god. In the ancient Middle East, the divine mana was experienced in ritual and myth. Marduk, Baal, and Anat were not expected to involve themselves in the lives of their worshippers. Their actions had been performed in sacred time. The God of Israel, however, made his power effective in current events in the real world. He was experienced as an imperative in the here and now. His first revelation of himself consists of a command. 
Abraham is to leave his people and travel to the land of Canaan. But who is Yahweh? Did Abraham worship the same God as Moses, or did he know him by a different name? We are so familiar with the Bible story and the subsequent history of Israel that we tend to project our knowledge of later Jewish religion back onto these early historical personages. Accordingly, we assume that the three patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, his son Isaac, and his grandson Jacob, were monotheists, that they believed in only one God. This does not seem to have been the case. Indeed, it is probably more accurate to call these early Hebrews pagans, who shared many of the religious beliefs of their neighbours in Canaan. They may not all have worshipped the same deity. It's possible that the God of Abraham, the fear or kinsman of Isaac, and the mighty one of Jacob were three separate gods. We can go further. It's highly likely that Abraham's god was El, the high god of Canaan. The name of the Canaanite high god is preserved in such Hebrew names as Israel or Ishmael. They experienced him in ways that would not have been unfamiliar to the pagans of the Middle East. We shall see that centuries later, Israelites found the mana, or holiness, of Yahweh a terrifying experience. On Mount Sinai, for example, he would appear to Moses in the midst of an awe-inspiring volcanic eruption, and the Israelites had to keep their distance. In comparison, Abraham's god, El, is a very mild deity. He appears to Abraham as a friend, and sometimes even assumes human form. This type of divine apparition, known as an epiphany, was quite common in the pagan world of antiquity. It seems that ordinary folk may have believed that such divine encounters were possible in their own lives. This may explain the strange story in the Acts of the Apostles, when, as late as the first century CE, that is, the Common Era, the Apostle Paul and his disciple Barnabas were mistaken for Zeus and Hermes by the people of Lystra in what is now Turkey. In much the same way, when the Israelites looked back to their own golden age, they saw Abraham, Isaac and Jacob living on familiar terms with their God. El gives them friendly advice, like any sheikh or chieftain. He guides their wanderings, tells them whom to marry and speaks to them in dreams. Occasionally, they seem to see him in human form, an idea that would later be anathema to the Israelites. In chapter 18 of Genesis, Jay tells us that God appeared to Abraham near Hebron. Abraham looked up and noticed three strangers approaching. With typical Middle Eastern courtesy, he insisted that they sit down and rest while he hurried to prepare food for them. It transpired, quite naturally, that one of these men was none other than his God, whom Jay always calls Yahweh. The other two men turn out to be angels. By the time Jay was writing, in the 8th century BCE, no Israelite would have expected to see God in this way. Most would have found it a shocking notion. Jacob also experienced a number of epiphanies. On one occasion, he decided to return to Haran to find a wife among his relatives there. On the first leg of his journey, he slept at Luz, near the Jordan Valley. That night, he dreamt of a ladder which stretched between earth and heaven. Angels were going up and down between the realms of God and man. At the top, J 
Jacob dreamed that he saw El, who blessed him and repeated the promises that he'd made to Abraham. Jacob's descendants would become a mighty nation and possess the land of Canaan. He also made a promise that made a significant impression on Jacob. Pagan religion was often territorial. A god had jurisdiction only in a particular area. But El promised Jacob that he would protect him when he left Canaan and wandered in a strange land. I am with you. I will keep you safe wherever you go. The story of this early epiphany shows that the high god of Canaan was beginning to acquire a more universal implication. Yet, even though these early tales show the patriarchs encountering their god in much the same way as their pagan contemporaries, they do introduce a new category of religious experience. Throughout the Bible, Abraham is called a man of faith. Today, we tend to define faith as an intellectual assent to a creed. But the biblical writers didn't view faith in God as an abstract or metaphysical belief. When they praise the faith of Abraham, they are not commending his orthodoxy, but his trust, in the same way as we say that we have faith in a person or an ideal. In the Bible, Abraham is a man of faith because he trusts that God would make good his promises, even though they seem absurd. How could Abraham be the father of a great nation when his wife, Sarah, is barren? Indeed, the very idea that she would have a child is so ridiculous, Sarah has passed the menopause, that when they hear this promise, both Sarah and Abraham burst out laughing. When their son is finally born, they call him Isaac, a name that may mean laughter. The joke turns sour, however, when God makes an appalling demand. Abraham must sacrifice his only son to him. Abraham decided to trust his God. He and Isaac set off on a three-day journey to the Mount of Moriah, which would later be the site of the temple in Jerusalem. Isaac, who knew nothing of the divine command, even had to carry the wood for his own holocaust. It was not until the very last moment, when Abraham actually had the knife in his hand, that God relented and told him that it had only been a test. Abraham had proved himself worthy of becoming the father of a mighty nation. Yet, to modern ears, this is a horrible story. It depicts God as a despotic and capricious sadist, and it's not surprising that many people today who have heard this tale as children reject such a deity. The myth of Exodus from Egypt, when God led Moses and the children of Israel to freedom, is equally offensive to modern sensibilities. The story is well known. Pharaoh was reluctant to let the people of Israel go, so, to force his hand, God sent ten fearful plagues upon the people of Egypt. Finally, God sent the angel of death to kill the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians while sparing the sons of the Hebrew slaves. Not surprisingly, Pharaoh decided to let the Israelites leave, but later changed his mind and pursued them with his army. He caught up with them at the Sea of Reeds, but God saved the Israelites by opening the sea and letting them cross dry shod. When the Egyptians followed, he closed the waters and drowned Pharaoh and his army. This is a brutal, partial and murderous God, 
a god of war who would be known as Yahweh Sabot, the god of armies. He's passionately partisan, has little compassion for anyone but his own favorites, and is simply a tribal deity. If Yahweh had remained such a savage god, the sooner he vanished, the better it would have been for everybody. Surprising as it may seem, the Israelites would transform him beyond recognition into a symbol of transcendence and compassion. Whatever his provenance, the events of the Exodus made Yahweh the definitive God of Israel, and Moses was able to convince the Israelites that he really was one and the same as El, the God beloved by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was in Midian that Moses had his first vision of Yahweh. Moses had been forced to flee Egypt for killing an Egyptian who was ill-treating an Israelite slave. He'd taken refuge in Midian, married there, and while tending his father-in-law's sheep, he'd seen a strange sight, a bush that burnt without being consumed. When he went closer to investigate, Yahweh had called to him by name, and Moses had cried, Here I am, the response of every prophet of Israel when he encountered the God who demanded total attention and loyalty. Even though at this meeting Yahweh actually claimed to be the same as the God of Abraham, this is a very different kind of deity from the one who'd shared a meal with Abraham, his friend. He inspires terror and insists upon distance. When Moses asks his name and credentials, Yahweh replies with a pun. I am who I am, which in Hebrew is Eye Asher Eye. What did he mean? He certainly didn't mean that he was self-subsistent being. Eye Asher Eye is a Hebrew idiom to express a deliberate vagueness. When the Bible uses a phrase like, they went where they went, it means, I haven't the faintest idea where they went. So, when Moses asks who he is, God replies, in effect, never you mind who I am, or mind your own business. There was to be no discussion of God's nature, and certainly no attempt to manipulate him. Yahweh is the unconditioned one. I shall be that which I shall be. He will be exactly as he chooses, and will make no guarantees. He simply promised that he would participate in the history of his people. There was a price to be paid for this new sense of empowerment. Yahweh had opened the gulf between man and the divine world once again. This is graphically clear in the story of Mount Sinai. When they arrived at the mountain, the people were told to purify their garments and keep their distance. Moses alone went up to the summit and received the tablets of the law. Instead of experiencing the principles of order, harmony, and justice in the very nature of things like their pagan neighbors, the law of the Israelites is now handed down from on high. The God of history can inspire a greater attention in the mundane world, but there's also the potential for a profound alienation from it. In the final text of Exodus, edited in the 5th century BCE, God is said to have made a covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai, an event which is supposed to have happened around 1200. But whatever its date, the idea of the covenant tells us that the Israelites were not yet monotheists, since it only made sense in a polytheistic setting. 
the Israelites didn't believe that Yahweh, the God of Sinai, was the only God, but promised in their covenant that they would ignore all the other deities and worship him alone. The worship of a single deity was an almost unprecedented step. The Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten had attempted to worship the sun god and to ignore the other traditional deities of Egypt, but his policies were immediately reversed by his successor. When they settled in Canaan, the Israelites turned instinctively to the cult of Baal, the landlord of Canaan, who had made the crops grow there from time immemorial. The, the prophets would urge the Israelites to remain true to the covenant, but the majority would continue to worship Baal, Asherah, and Anat in the traditional way. Yet the Israelites had promised to make Yahweh their only God after the Exodus, and the prophets would remind them of this agreement in later years. They had promised to worship Yahweh alone as their God, their Elohim, and, in return, God had promised that they would be his special people and enjoy his uniquely efficacious protection. There was always a danger that the cult of Yahweh would eventually be submerged by the popular paganism. This became particularly acute during the latter half of the 9th century. In 869, King Ahab had succeeded to the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel. His wife Jezebel was an ardent pagan, intent upon converting the country to the religion of Baal and Asherah. She imported priests of Baal, who quickly acquired a following. When a severe drought struck the land, a prophet named Elijah, which means Yahweh is my God, began to wander through the land, fulminating against the disloyalty to Yahweh. He summoned King Ahab and the people to a contest on Mount Carmel between Yahweh and Baal. There, in the presence of the 450 priests of Baal, he harangued the people. How long would they dither between the two deities? Then he called for two bulls, one for himself and one for the priests of Baal, to be placed on two altars. They would call upon their gods and see which one sent down fire from heaven to consume the holocaust. Agreed, cried the people. The priests of Baal shouted his name the whole morning, yelling and gashing themselves. But there was no voice, no answer. Elijah jeered. Call louder, he cried, for he's a god. He's preoccupied, or he's busy, or he's gone on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and will wake up. Nothing happened. There was no voice, no answer, no attention given them. Then it was Elijah's turn. The people crowded around the altar of Yahweh while he dug a trench around it, which he filled with water to make it even more difficult to ignite. Then Elijah called upon Yahweh. Immediately, of course, fire fell from heaven and consumed the altar, licking up all the water in the trench. The people fell on their faces. Yahweh is God, they cried. Yahweh is God. Elijah was not a generous victor. Seize the priests of Baal, he ordered. He slaughtered the lot. These early mythical events show that from the first, Yahwism demanded a violent repression and denial of other faiths, a phenomenon we shall examine in more detail. Fearing a reaction against his massacre, Elijah fled to the Sinai Peninsula and took refuge on the mountain where God had revealed himself to Moses. There he experienced a theophany which manifested his new Yahwist spirituality.
he was told to stand in the crevice of a rock to shield himself from the divine impact. Then Yahweh himself went by. Thence came a mighty wind, but Yahweh was not in the wind. After the wind came an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire came the sound of a gentle breeze. And when Elijah heard this, he covered his face with a cloak. Unlike the pagan deities, Yahweh was not in any of the forces of nature, but in a realm apart. His experience in the scarcely perceptible timbre of a tiny breeze, in the paradox of a voiced silence. The story of Elijah contains the last mythical account of the past in the Jewish scriptures. Change was in the air throughout the Ocumene. The period 800 to 200 BCE has been termed the Axial Age. In all the main regions of the civilized world, people created new ideologies that have continued to be crucial and formative. The new religious systems reflected the changed economic and social conditions. Each region developed a distinctive ideology to address these problems and concerns. Taoism and Confucianism in China, Hinduism and Buddhism in India, and philosophical rationalism in Europe. The Middle East didn't produce a uniform solution, but in Iran and Israel, Zoroaster and the Hebrew prophets respectively evolved different versions of monotheism. Strange as it may seem, the idea of God, like the other great religious insights of the period, developed in a market economy in a spirit of aggressive capitalism. In the new ideologies of the Axial Age, there was a general agreement that human life contained a transcendent element that was essential. The various sages were united in seeing it as crucial to the development of men and women. They hadn't jettisoned the older mythologies absolutely, but reinterpreted them and helped people to rise above them. At the same time as these momentous ideologies were being formed, the prophets of Israel developed their own traditions to meet the changing conditions, with the result that Yahweh eventually became the only God. But how would irascible Yahweh measure up to these other lofty visions? In 742 BCE, a member of the Judean royal family had a vision of Yahweh in the temple which King Solomon had built in Jerusalem. It was an anxious time for the people of Israel. King Uzziah of Judah had died that year and was succeeded by his son Ahaz, who would encourage his subjects to worship pagan gods alongside Yahweh. The northern kingdom of Israel was in a state of near anarchy. The king of Assyria would conquer the northern kingdom in 722 and deport the population. The ten northern tribes of Israel disappeared from history while the little kingdom of Judah in the south feared for its own survival. As Isaiah prayed in the temple shortly after King Uzziah's death, he was probably full of foreboding. At the same time, he may have been uncomfortably aware of the inappropriateness of the lavish temple ceremonial. As the incense filled the sanctuary and the place reeked with the blood of sacrificial animals, he may have feared 
that the religion of Israel had lost its integrity and inner meaning. Suddenly, he seemed to see Yahweh himself sitting on his throne in heaven directly above the temple, which was the replica of his celestial court. Yahweh's train filled the sanctuary, and he was attended by two seraphs, who covered their faces with their wings, lest they look upon his face. They cried out, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Sabbath. His glory fills the whole earth. When we use the word holy today, we usually refer to a state of moral excellence. The Hebrew kadosh, however, has nothing to do with morality, but means otherness, a radical separation. The apparition of Yahweh on Mount Sinai had emphasized the immense gulf that had suddenly yawned between man and the divine world. Now the seraphs were crying, Yahweh is other, other, other. The new Yahweh of the Axial Age was still the god of armies, Sabot, but was no longer a mere god of war. Nor was he simply a tribal deity, passionately biased in favor of Israel. His glory was no longer confined to the promised land, but filled the whole earth. Unlike the Buddha, Isaiah had not become the perfected teacher of men. Instead, he was filled with mortal terror, crying aloud, What a wretched state I am in! I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have looked at the king, Yahweh Sabbath. Overcome by the transcendent holiness of Yahweh, he was conscious only of his own inadequacy and ritual impurity. One of the seraphs flew towards him with a live coal and purified his lips so that they could utter the word of God. Many of the prophets were either unwilling to speak on God's behalf or unable to do so. The regular motif of the stories of prophetic vocations symbolizes the difficulty of speaking God's word. The Israelites of Isaiah's day were on the brink of war and extinction, and Yahweh had no cheerful message for them. Their cities would be devastated, the countryside ravaged, and the houses emptied of their inhabitants. Isaiah would live to see the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 and the deportation of the ten tribes. Isaiah had the thankless task of warning his people. It would not have been difficult for any astute political observer to foresee these catastrophes. What was chillingly original in Isaiah's message was his analysis of the situation. The old partisan god of Moses would have cast Assyria into the role of the enemy. The god of Isaiah saw Assyria as his instrument. It is Yahweh who drives the people out. This was a constant theme in the message of the prophets of the Axial Age. The God of Israel had originally distinguished himself from the pagan deities by revealing himself in concrete current events, not simply in mythology and liturgy. Now, the new prophets insisted, political catastrophe as well as victory revealed the God who was the Lord and Master of history. He had all the nations in his pocket. But no Israelite would have wanted to hear that his own people had brought political destruction upon its own head. Nobody would have been happy to hear that Yahweh had masterminded the successful Assyrian campaign. 
What did he think he was doing with the nation that was supposed to be his chosen people? There was no wish fulfillment in Isaiah's depiction of Yahweh. While the God of Moses had been triumphalist, the God of Isaiah was full of sorrow. The prophecy, as it has come down to us, begins with a lament that is highly unflattering to the people of the covenant. The ox and the ass know their owners, but Israel knows nothing. My people understand nothing. Yahweh was utterly revolted by the animal sacrifices in the temple. He couldn't bear their festivals, New Year ceremonies and pilgrimages. The pagan gods depended upon ceremonies. Their prestige depended in part upon the magnificence of their temples. Now Yahweh was saying that these things were utterly meaningless. Like other sages and philosophers in the Oikumene at this time, Isaiah felt that exterior observance was not enough. Israelites must discover the inner meaning of their religion. Yahweh wanted compassion rather than sacrifice. The prophets had discovered for themselves the overriding duty of compassion, which would become the hallmark of all the major religions formed in the Axial Age. The new ideologies that were developing in the Oikumene during this period all insisted that the test of authenticity was that religious experience be integrated successfully with daily life. It was no longer sufficient to confine observance to the temple and to the extra-temporal world of myth. After enlightenment, a man or woman must practice compassion for all living beings. At the time of Isaiah's prophetic vision, two prophets were already preaching a similar message in the chaotic northern kingdom. The first was Amos, a shepherd who had originally lived in Tekoa in the southern kingdom. In about 752, Amos had also been overwhelmed by a sudden imperative that had swept him to the kingdom of Israel in the north. He'd burst into the ancient shrine of Bethel and shattered the ceremonial there with a prophecy of doom. Though the people of Bethel didn't want to hear Yahweh's message, very well, he had another oracle for them. Their wives would be forced onto the streets, their children slaughtered, and they themselves would die in exile, far from the land of Israel. In Amos's oracles, Yahweh was speaking on behalf of the oppressed, giving voice to the voiceless, impotent suffering of the poor. The people of Israel were just as bad as the Goyim, the Gentiles. They might be able to ignore the oppression of the poor, but Yahweh could not. Yahweh noticed every instance of swindling, exploitation, and lack of compassion. They thought they were God's chosen people. They had entirely misunderstood the nature of the covenant, which meant responsibility, not privilege. The covenant meant that all the people of Israel were God's elect and had therefore to be treated decently. God did not simply intervene in history to glorify Israel, but to secure social justice. This was his stake in history, and, if need be, he would use the Assyrian army to enforce justice. Not surprisingly, most Israelites declined the prophet's invitation to enter into dialogue with Yahweh. They preferred a less demanding religion of cultic observance, either in the Jerusalem temple or in the old fertility cults of Canaan. The ancient Canaanite religions were still flourishing in Israel. 
In the 10th century, King Jeroboam I had set up two cultic bulls at the sanctuaries of Dan and Bethel in the northern kingdom. 200 years later, the Israelites were still taking part in fertility rites and sacred sex there, as we see in the oracles of the prophet Hosea, Amos's contemporary. Hosea was particularly disturbed by the fact that Israel was breaking the terms of the covenant by worshipping other gods, such as Baal. Like all the new prophets, he was concerned with the inner meaning of religion. In the old Canaanite religion, Baal had married the soil, and the people had celebrated this with ritual orgies. But Hosea insisted that, since the covenant, Yahweh had taken the place of Baal and had wedded the people of Israel. He was still wooing Israel like a lover, determined to have her back from the Baals who had seduced her. When Amos attacked social wickedness, Hosea dwelt on the lack of inwardness in Israelite religion. Hosea gives us a startling insight into the way the prophets were developing their image of God. At the very beginning of Hosea's career, Yahweh issued a shocking command. He told Hosea to go off and marry a whore, because the whole country had become nothing but a whore, abandoning Yahweh. Given Hosea's preoccupation with fertility rituals, it seems likely that his wife, Goma, had become one of the sacred personnel in the cult of Baal. His marriage was, therefore, an emblem of Yahweh's relationship with the faithless Israel. But Hosea still loved Goma, and eventually he went after her and bought her back from her new master. He saw his own desire to win Goma back as a sign that Yahweh was willing to give Israel another chance. When they attributed their own human feelings and experiences to Yahweh, the prophets were, in an important sense, creating a god in their own image. Isaiah, a member of the royal family, had seen Yahweh as a king. Amos had ascribed his own empathy with the poor to Yahweh. Hosea saw Yahweh as a jilted husband, who still continued to feel a yearning tenderness for his wife. All religion must begin with some anthropomorphism. As long as this projection doesn't become an end in itself, it can be useful and beneficial. It has to be said that this imaginative portrayal of God in human terms has inspired a social concern that was not present in a religion like Hinduism. All three of the God religions have shared the egalitarian and socialist ethic of Amos and Isaiah. The Jews would be the first people in the ancient world to establish a welfare system that was the admiration of their pagan neighbours. Like all the other prophets, Hosea was haunted by the horror of idolatry. He contemplated the divine vengeance that the northern tribes would bring upon themselves by worshipping gods that they had made themselves. Of course, the people of Canaan and Babylon had never believed that their effigies were themselves divine. The effigy had been a symbol of divinity. Like their myths, it had been devised to direct the attention of the worshipper beyond itself. Today, 
we've become so familiar with the intolerance that has unfortunately been a characteristic of monotheism that we may not appreciate that this hostility towards other gods was a new religious attitude. Despite the bad press it has in the Bible, there's nothing wrong with idolatry in itself. It becomes objectionable or naive only if the image of God is confused with the ineffable reality to which it refers. The dangers of an idolatrous religiosity become clear in about 622 BCE, during the reign of King Josiah of Judah. He was anxious to reverse the syncretist policies of his predecessors, who had encouraged their people to worship the gods of Canaan alongside Yahweh. Determined to promote the cult of Yahweh, however, Josiah had decided to make extensive repairs in the temple. The high priest Hilkiah is said to have discovered an ancient manuscript which purported to be an account of Moses' last sermon to the children of Israel. He gave it to Josiah's secretary, who read it aloud. When he heard it, the young king tore his garments in horror. No wonder Yahweh had been so angry with his ancestors. They had totally failed to obey his strict instructions to Moses. It's almost certain that the Book of the Law discovered by Hilkiah was the core of the text that we now know as Deuteronomy. In his last sermon, Moses is made to give a new centrality to the covenant and the idea of the special election of Israel. Yahweh had marked his people out from all the other nations, not because of any merit of their own, but because of his great love. In return, he demanded complete loyalty and a fierce rejection of all other gods. The core of Deuteronomy includes the declaration which would later become the Jewish profession of faith. Listen, Shema, Israel. Yahweh is our Elohim, our God. Yahweh alone. You shall love Yahweh with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Let these words I urge upon you today be written on your hearts. Far from obeying Yahweh's commands, the last two kings of Israel had deliberately courted disaster. Josiah instantly began a reform, acting with exemplary zeal. All the images, idols, and fertility symbols were taken out of the temple and burned. Josiah also pulled down the large effigy of Asherah and destroyed the apartments of the temple prostitutes. All the ancient shrines in the country were destroyed. Henceforth, the priests were only allowed to offer sacrifice to Yahweh in the purified Jerusalem temple. The reformers rewrote Israelite history. The historical books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel and Kings were revised according to the new ideology, and later, the editors of the Pentateuch added passages that gave a Deuteronomist interpretation of the Exodus myth to the older narratives of J and E. Yahweh was now the author of a holy war of extermination in Canaan. We should note that not all the Israelites subscribed to Deuteronomism in the years that led up to the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 587 BCE and the deportation of the Jews to Babylon. In 604, the year that Nebuchadnezzar succeeded to the throne in Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah revived the iconoclastic perspective of Isaiah. 
God was using Babylon as his instrument to punish Israel. They would go into exile for 70 years. Jeremiah's career shows the immense pain and effort involved in the forging of this more challenging image of God. He hated being a prophet and was profoundly distressed to have to condemn the people he loved. He was not a natural firebrand, but a tender-hearted man. When the call had come to him, he cried out in protest, Ah, Lord Yahweh, look, I don't know how to speak, I'm a child. And Yahweh had put out his hand and touched his lips, putting his words on his mouth. After the conquest of Jerusalem in 587 BCE, the Israelites who were taken into exile by the Babylonians were not forced to assimilate, as the ten northern tribes had been in 722. They lived in two communities, one in Babylon and the other on the banks of a canal called the Chebar, in an area which they named Tel Aviv, or Springtime Hill. Among the first batch of exiles to be deported in 597 had been a priest called Ezekiel. He had a shattering vision of Yahweh, which literally knocked him out. Ezekiel had seen a cloud of light shot through with lightning. A strong wind blew from the north. In the midst of this stormy obscurity, he seemed to see a great chariot pulled by four strong beasts. Each one had four heads, with the face of a man, a lion, a bull, and an eagle. On the chariot, there was something that was like a throne, and, sitting in state, was a being that looked like a man. At once, Ezekiel fell upon his face and heard a voice addressing him. The voice called Ezekiel, Son of Man, as if to emphasize the distance that now existed between humanity and the divine realm. Yet again, the vision of Yahweh was followed by a practical plan of action. Ezekiel was commanded to eat a scroll, to ingest the word of God and make it a part of himself. The scroll turned out to taste as sweet as honey. Finally, Ezekiel said, the spirit lifted me and took me. My heart as I went overflowed with bitterness and anger and the hand of Yahweh lay heavy on me. He arrived at Tel Aviv and lay like one stunned for a whole week. Ezekiel's strange career emphasizes how alien and foreign the divine world had become to humanity. He himself was forced to become a sign of this strangeness. Yahweh frequently commanded him to perform weird mimes, which were designed to demonstrate the plight of Israel, and showed that Israel was itself becoming an outsider in the pagan world. Ezekiel had become an icon of the radical discontinuity that the cult of Yahweh involved. Nothing could be taken for granted, and normal responses were denied. During one of his visions, he was conducted on a guided tour of the temple in Jerusalem. To his horror, he saw that poised as they were on the brink of destruction, the people of Judah were still worshipping pagan gods in the temple of Yahweh. Finally, the prophet watched the strange chariot he had seen in his first vision fly away, taking the glory of Yahweh with it out of Jerusalem. Yet Yahweh was not an entirely distant deity. 
In the final days before Jerusalem was destroyed, Ezekiel depicts him fulminating against the people of Israel in a vain attempt to force them to acknowledge him. Israel had only itself to blame for the impending catastrophe. As they sat beside the... I hope you've had enough of God. We're going to play a couple commercials when we'll be back. We got the Sheriff of Truth in the house actually here. It's incredible. Excited. Uh, we're going to play some Mutiny Radio commercials and we'll be right back with all kinds of one stuff. Yay! Captain Curls up in the head, Mutiny Radio Festival, Ahoy! Ah, very good! Ah, very good, Legless Joe! I'm surprised you can see from the crow's nest with no legs! It's to get ready! Crew, the festival is upon us! Scurvy Steve, how many comics? Over a hundred comics! You're looking good, Scurvy Steve! Glad the scurvy hasn't taken you! Aye, aye, Captain! You! No Liver Mary! How many venues? We've got nine venues, sir! And you, boy, what's your name? Very good! And finally, Eleven Fingers Sally! What about the tickets? You can find all of your tickets on Eventbrite, sir! Check out www.mutinyradio.fm What is that? I don't know what a website is. I'm a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> but f- quick to the festival. All sails ahead. Arr. Pirate Yaka. noises. Ambiance. Exciting, exciting news, everyone. <laughs> Guess who's here? Me! Let's tell you the share of the truth. Woohoo! We're here together. Hell yeah, in the flesh, in for the realsies. Flesh. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, cool stuff. Sorry yeah. I uh, had a nervous breakdown last week. The, the festival is upon us, and I've been. Uh, it's festival time. It's festival time, <laughs> yeah. And I was. I was losing it because there's so many people involved this year, and I was trying to, I couldn't figure out Gmail when you do threads. I did like a big group message, like, oh, this will be easy, but I couldn't see anybody's responses, and all these people were like, and I was like, this is impossible. So I emailed everyone individually, and then I got it all, and everyone gave me their responses, and I started doing it, and it was no problem. There were like five people that didn't get back to me. So I sent them all personal emails again. Hey, I really need your information. And I tried for the whole week and I gave them the whole weekend. And then finally I sent a last email yesterday and I'm like, this is it, guys. There's no space left. I'm sorry you didn't get to me. And one of the guys was like, I did. I sent in that original email. And I'm like, but what about the subsequent? You didn't get the other one. But it wasn't too bad because he was just from Sacramento. So it was no big deal. So it was like... He, I was like, come down on the Sunday if you want to come. You're welcome to come to Phoenix Day. And he's like, oh, maybe next year, whatever. And I'm like, okay, good. So <laughs> I didn't, I was so worried about pissing people off, but I didn't, and it's okay. And there are a couple of people that fell through the cracks, but then I found them, and then I got to them, but then they never came back out of the cracks. So I'm like, all right, that's on you, right? Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, if anybody says anything at this point, I'll be like, I'm sorry that I tried my best, but there are a hundred of you, and there's one of me, and... Boy, oh boy. So anyways. Were that you was able the to get the assistance that you needed? No. I had uh. to figure it out for myself. Um, it's fine. It's, it's, the thing is, people have their own. I understand 
People have their own jobs. They have their own lives. They work money different ways. They do their lives are their own. And I have, I, but I cannot. They're paid, I, right? They are being paid, but okay. they're it, and they're but they're doing. You know, it's one of those things where I expect a lot out of myself, where it's not not necessarily monetarily compensated. But I understand that other people are. So I pay people to do 15 hours a month of work. And they're absolutely doing 15 hours a month of work. But when there are other things that I need, I'm like, oh, can you do this too? And so it's just the only reason that it's difficult for me is the technology is such a barrier. And I know for the kids these days, that's just part and parcel of the whole. They're like, oh, well, why don't you just do the put and the and the and I'm like, I don't know how to upload things to YouTube. So you're like, shut up, kid. Yeah, I'm like, can you upload it to me for YouTube? YouTube? Because I don't know how to do that. So could you program my VCR for me? Because I have no idea how to do that either. Or my TiVo. Yeah, my t anything. I don't. I mean, I don't have internet. But everything, everything worked out. The schedule is right now. It's it's set. Like it's. Everyone who's coming from out of town has at least three 10 minute sets. All of my hosts have at least one. Some of them have more than one, which is great. Um, I'm trying to work out the classes now, and it's hard because a lot of people aren't available during daytime during the week. Mm. And I'm like, but that's when the classes are. Oh, so I'm going to have to figure out. I might be teaching a lot more than I and initially anticipated, but that's fine because it's in the grant that I'll also get paid. So. I also want to be able to, when you get free time one day in this lifetime, you should come to the school of Marcus and Toya's tutorial of social media oh my God, for free Yeah, at our crib. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't even upload. I just learned how to put multiple images on Instagram at once. I just learned that like two days ago. So... Yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, having, I'm having a lot. Uh, I'm like, because ah! technology can make you pull your hair out. Like, especially, you know, I get the whole Google Forms. I just learned how to do it. Pretty, you know, I'm. It's still a work in progress, but I just learned a little bit last year and stuff. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck. Is. Um, but yeah, especially when you're just like trying to get things done and you have a deadline and then you don't know how is this working? I don't understand. Am I going to F this up? Is this going to get deleted? Because that's always right? our biggest fear. I did that like, on Instagram. Delete, no. yeah. So I tried to make a group because on Messenger, they won't let you make a group message between more than 20 people and or 50 people, something it's not enough, right? So I tried to make a group message on Instagram and I was trying to tag everybody, but I made a mistake and it all disappeared. And I lost my mind. I was like, oh, that work is for nothing. So I, I gave it to a child. I um, I do. I have a new intern, and he's twenty one or twenty two, and I, he was like, "Give me your passwords," and I said, "I'm not gonna give you all my passwords on inst on, on Messenger. I don't think that this is smart. I mean, I'm pretty dumb with technology, but, but I that's, think that's you, you're I right about that. think <laughs> I was like, I'm not gonna send you because it could have been one of any five passwords because I have about five of them that I cycle in between. So I made him come in. I took his phone. And I logged him in to the Mutiny Radio uh, Comedy Festival um, Instagram. And I was like, okay, do this. And he goes, okay. So <laughs> because for the kids, it's easy. It's like 
they do it on the bus. They do it for fun. They don't give a shit. They're like, this is, it's just part of their whole world. And I'm, you know, I'm, I like reading books and writing poems. But do they know how to write cursive? No, they don't. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. They have no idea how to write cursive. Do you know what a pencil is? Yeah, I'm a witch. I know what a pen, not a mechanical pencil. Oh, I wasn't talking about what you. What is this? I know. Yeah. They, they're like, do we use a knife and scrape it to make it sharp? What does it do? Do we make fire out of it? Yeah, we can light it up. Can you imagine? What's a trapper keeper? What? <laughs> I know. These kids. So tonight I'm on hates debates and I'm debating the dumbest thing in the world. Uh-oh, which is planes versus boats. And I'm planes. I am pla You know I'm going to be planes. So <laughs> this is this is one of the things I'm going to say. I'm going to say the sea the sea is a frightening abyss of darkness and danger. And the sky is also scary, but at least we can see it. Like when you're in the sky, you can see shit. In the ocean, you're on a boat mm -hmm. floating on top of the ocean. What about shark? There are so many things that can kill you in the ocean. You can't even see. There's things you can't even understand. There's 100 feet foot long squid. Now, if those were in the sky, we would be losing our fucking minds. <laughs> we wouldn't be flying in planes because there's giant squid in the sky. But the hubris of us to be like, eh, we'll float on boats above this crazy stuff. And then you might say, oh, well, Sharknado, that's sharks in the sky. And that's not real, but that's also <laughs> insane. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? They're just proving my point. If you take the sea and put it in the air, fucking scary shit. And plus with planes, it's more of human error. If anything, uh, it'll be human error. As for when you're in the sea, there is cause for human error and natural disaster. God's gonna take you out. You know? And yeah, so, and sure. then with the technology yeah, now with planes, down. you know, you're able, before you take off, you're able to see, you know, if there's any storms coming or what have you, or you have to get an emergency landing. Hopefully, pray to God that you make it to right. that emergency landing. But I, I totally will take planes over sea, though Pains, I love planes. cruises. So I like now, that's another thing I'm going to say about boats. Boats are for rich people or <laughs> pirates, and I love pirates. But boats, either you have a yacht, and then fuck you, or you're on a cruise, and you're like, I want to be on a boat, and that's fun, but it's, they're expensive. Yeah. They're expensive, whereas planes are accessible to all. Yes, Spirit Air is a pile of dog shit. Yes, yeah. Ryan Air makes you want to kill yourself. But yeah. <laughs> you can still get from Spain to Amsterdam for 39 bucks. Can't do that on a boat. Also, who has that much time? Yeah. Only rich people have that much time. Oh, I'm going to go from New York to Amsterdam. It's going to take you two weeks as opposed to oh, 10 hours or whatever. I mean, how long would it take? It would take. I, I mean, do a little research. I'm just thinking about, of course, I'm going to go into this, the, like the Atlantic slave trade. So mm. if you are, hence why I prefer planes. Thank you, both slave. Um, never, yeah. never taken <laughs> slaves on planes. Yeah, exactly. Well, mm, uh, that I know. but because just for like, from like let's say like from like Nigeria to Portugal was a matter of a month. Uh, so imagine like trying to cut get over or like even I I won't you know I'll even say like those the early days of the immigrants you know that came through Ellis Island that boat ride coming mm. in from Europe was months of time boats and then, are racist boats are racist <laughs> <laughs> 
But I mean, and there's also, you know, the fear of your anything boats sink. We know about the Titanic. We know mm -hmm. about, you know, <laughs> those kind of things, which you don't see as often as a, a ship knocking into like an iceberg. There's no icebergs in the sky. Yeah. Um, but I would, I love being in the middle of the ocean in the middle of nowhere. I really do. But there's also that fear in the back of my head as if anything shall happen, we are lost in the middle of the sea and no one can hear us, which is kind of a cool yet scary thought. But here's another thing with planes. If your plane malfunctions and it crashes and you're over the sea, right? which has happened many times over where there are planes that have crashed and people ended up being like lost at sea, but most of the time they've been found. There's that, you're getting both of the best worlds, I guess. Right, because your plane can become a boat. Exactly, exactly, so. But boats cannot become planes. That, <laughs> that, and that part. And there, I mean, like she said, all the critters and the sea life. And let's also say, I think we talked about this. There are the dolphins and the killer whales mm. that are going after these yachts and ships because they're getting pissed off that they're in you're in their territory and these mammals are pretty freaking smart and they've been actually tipping over a lot of the yachts. I heard about the um the great the killer whales. Yeah, the, the killer orcas whales. that the are orcas, like, the socialist orcas. Yeah, they're that are murdering rich people. Fantastic nature. Good get get it going. Yeah. Get it going. We talked about my conspiracy theory about the underground the, about the they're in Atlantis, the rich people, they didn't die. No they're underground. But don't be fools like those people that wanted to go see the Titanic oh. in a tuna can, which wasn't made out of metal. Yeah, some new space age material. Again, I really think all of that is uh, a conspiracy. I think it's one of those look the other way things. I think something big happened in the world, and rather it, than paying attention to it, they're like, look, a bunch of people died in the submarine. But it did. You're right. And it wasn't a conspiracy. You're actually factual because there were migrants who the same thing migrants who are trying to uh, get to Europe about 700 of them fell into the sea in the Mediterranean that same time as that Tudican um, uh, explorer of the Titanic it's happened months. so it was no forget about these people who are trying to seek refuge in a better yeah, life yeah, it's the rich but people. these rich people that wanted the to five, look at the, the yeah, yeah so not a conspiracy but yes but they do that all the time with us. They say, they give us news cycles and they say, look what's happening over here. And it's titillating. And so we're like, ooh, what's this? And everybody talks about it and it's trending on Twitter and everybody's ooh, blah, 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 blah. And all the TV shows talk about it and everybody says the same thing. Well, something real actually happens. Laws get passed, things. I know they were doing this during the drug policy times where they'd be like, look at this big thing over here. And then some sneaky law gets passed through that we didn't even know about. So they're, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And well, then, what's going on in the world, though? You're the only one who knows. Uh, oh, my gosh. I haven't, I haven't read the, um, I haven't read the news today or yesterday. So, but I think, let, let me see. What I, I do know, <laughs> well, I think, so Trump is getting char more charges. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, I love to hear that. So that's cool. Let me get into my news feed. Here, this I is this is what we've this is what I just found on the ground. Your ideas are a success 
and your chances in love are great. Where did this come from? Er in den Kommen ist an und der lieben Abend die Alpchanzen. Glückwunsch. Okay, so that was in German. I don't know why. What, what fortune cookies are English one side, German on the other? Comment. Where did know. this come from? I bet it. I bet it fell out of my bag from Greece. To be honest, right? probably it probably did. So here is some important news that has been going on with the um, with the heat going on in Texas and in all parts of the world. It's been a lot of real unbearable. And so in the Middle East, this is effed up. So the heat index reached 152 degrees Where? in the Middle East. Where in the this um, is. What, 152 degrees? Yeah, so um, in, in China, so oh. an all-time high of nearly 126 degrees, oh while God. in Death Valley here in California, Southern Cal, it hit 128 degrees. Wow. Um, and then in the Middle East, uh, between Iran and the Persian Gulf, oh, my God, 152 degrees. You cannot... No. go outside no you can't you so die so it's what we're seeing is the conditions and then also what's been going on in texas the whole wow. summer it's been in the triple digits pretty much um and then in the north or in the northeast it's been flooding like vermont and what have you so we're seeing climate change do its work like right. it was predicted to do but the fact that now we're seeing temperatures rise higher and faster than we thought it would like a hundred <laughs> Well, I was, we said it years ago on the AltaCast. We did some research about how they were saying that the, the Sahara Desert is growing uh, exponentially fast. And around the equator, they were surmising that if we don't have massive climate change or if we don't start making headroads into stopping this like you know massive climate issue, that 20% of the world is going to be uninhabitable. So you yes. just this is these are the first incarnations of it. 152 degrees, that's uninhabitable. But there's going to be a huge swath around the whole earth, around the equator and depending on what happens with climate change, where there's going to be uninhabitable more uninhabitable land where people were living previously. So we're not talking about like Antarctica. Yeah. You can't live in the North Pole. You can't really live in Antarctica. Got it. Polar bears. Okay. But where people are living now in the next 20 years, is mm -hmm. they're not going to be they're able to live there. So if we were dealing, if we're freaking out because Syria had 4 million refugees that we didn't take any of, and we're like, oh, good luck. Hey, everybody, you got a bunch of people. We're going to have, what are there, 7 billion people on the planet? We might... 20% of that, we're going to have just under a billion displaced humans. Like, just right. imagine that. Imagine one. So even if it's one-tenth, I mean, we're talking about 20%, though. If one-tenth of the world's population no longer could live where they're living, where do they go? And uh, I'm sure uh -huh. that the dumb kids go, well, now that you know, the polar ice caps are melting. Why can't they just move up to Antarctica? You know, Greenland just seems like a new nice place. Because how do you move you, the diaspora of people? And we already did this with the 
Remember when in Pakistan and India we tried to make all the Muslims and the, and the Hindus change places and the rich people had no problem, but all the poor people died and they were getting raped on the road and all this crazy shit was happening because they were trying to make people move. You try to make a million people move, shit's going to happen. So yeah. if we're talking like a billion people? Right, and then on top of that, like it's already started with like people trying to migrate because of lack of food. Yeah. And when you have lack of food and dry, you know, uh, drier land, not enough rain, that is going to get people to move to places where it's a little bit colder, where they get more rain and so on. Where so like eat, where you can grow things, where you can grow things, just like so California, for example. So Southern California is going to be not uh, inhabitable. Yeah. Within the next 20 to 30 years, I believe. I mean, and then same here. I mean, and until we look, get all the way up to Canada, it won't be in our lifetime, knock on wood, yeah. uh, but you're going to find places that are just going to be deserted. Well, and the, with the, I we talked about it before, is that um, with the polar ice caps melting and the sea levels rising, if you look at sea levels rising in San Francisco, mm -hmm. Part of us is going to be underwater. Oh, yeah. So what, I mean, and we, I thought the same thing about San Diego. <laughs> like, all the beaches. Let's, our world is changing. Do we care to try to stop these changes? Or do we say, well, all we can do is adapt. But then that's lucky for the people that are in adaptable places. But if you're in the Middle East and it's 152 degrees, it's 152. what the fuck are you going to do? Like, and, and here's the thing. Like, I've been to the Middle East. Not everyone has air condition. Yeah. So the fact of the matter that, and there's a lot of poor communities yeah. and outside of the city and these places, it, even if you are near the Persian Gulf, it is the, the habit, the, 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 the animal life. Just imagine just humans and animal life that are now probably deceased because of 152 degrees drier. I mean, you're not going to get too much water. So it's for people in San Francisco that can't understand. Uh, some of you have been to Burning Man and you go, oh, it's a hundred and there's no and tarps. OK, add 51 degrees to that. That's mind blowingly hot, like impossibly. You can't I just you can't survive. No one could survive in that shit. It's funny when uh San Franciscoans get like, oh my God, it's so hot. It's like 81 degrees. Right. I'm like, child, please. Yeah, yeah. I get to wear less clothes. Yeah, I, I mean, it's mind blowing. Yeah, but I mean, it is, it, it is something that unfortunately a lot of people still think that it's not real. No, isn't that crazy? I mean, a hundred. <laughs> the Texans, it's hot as balls in Texas right now. Hey, Texans that don't believe in global warming. Really? Mm -hmm. Really? I mean, especially if you're like one of those Trumpers and you're like almost 80 and you're like, oh, everything's got to change. And it's like, it is. It's called the climate. How are you? <laughs> you look at, look outside. Like you put your hand outside and you're like, ah, bake, you, could, you could cook bacon uh, with the sun. Shit. I mean, we could go down to Death Valley. It was a, almost 130 degrees, wow. which, I mean, Death Valley, it's always going to be in the triple digits in the summertime. But the fact that it's 130 degrees. He's it's just, just about, and there are people that actually live in Death Valley. Sure. <laughs> you know, you better have a pool. Shit. I mean, I, I can't even imagine if, if it was that hot, your pool would evaporate. It mm -hmm. would be <laughs> yeah. like, you'd have to be constantly adding water because of the, 
heat and evaporate. I, it, this is very scary. I haven't thought about global warming in a couple weeks. <laughs> I, <yeah>. Well, <laughs> you're welcome, like, Pam. Oh, God, global warming. No, and then Greta Thunberg, help us. Some kept come get on a boat. Help us. I was also reading yesterday that even um, so with the wine harvest that's coming up usually in late September to October, it might have to be delayed due to the weather and the temperatures. So wow. that also, I mean, again, this is, you know, I know it's wine, but we'll just add that to the, you know, vegetation sure. and food. This is also a sign of like, uh oh, we're, we're in some kind of trouble when you have to keep pushing and delaying like your wine harvest or any kind of food harvest at all. And if you are creating food, you need water. And mm -hmm. if it's hotter, water's doing evaporation things, and it's more difficult to harness your water to create your food things. I know it's the world. I well, it's so scary. It's so weird because the juxtaposition of I just um, downloaded and watched the season nine of Alone because I love that show, and the juxtaposition of like. They kept talking about to be out here in the wilderness, something has to die for us to be alive every day. You know, you're either killing a squirrel or you're killing a rabbit or you're killing a fish. Something has to die for us to live. And as humans, we have to recognize that pattern, that there's constant life and death. But in our modern society, we're so removed from that. Mm -hmm. And although it's true, like things die all the time so we can live. Like I baked bread this morning. A bunch of wheat had to die. The wheat had to be picked by somebody. That I hope they're not dead. But there's <laughs> machines that are made to thresh it. So there's like metals that are being pulled out of the earth. There's so many things and, and mechanization that happens for me to consume and to stay alive every day. And it's so far removed from what that used to be with our relationship with the environment and with nature and with being alive. So I don't know, did all of that convenience of not procuring our own food or keeping ourselves alive in that real like human survival way, does that obviously it gives us more time to watch Netflix and <laughs> do, I mean other things, but did has all this convenience that's been brought to our lives necessarily made us happier, more adjusted human beings than being in the wilderness and collecting food and killing animals and making sure the shelter and getting water and staying alive. Like, we're still staying alive, but now it seems that staying alive and staying happy is so much this mental game. That, yeah. You know? And then the staying alive and that, it, all, it it comes in not to just like trying to live and stay alive, but it, it, it becomes material possessions instead of like, you know, food, shelter, water, you know, right. family, health, sure. you know, it bullshit comes into it. And I, I don't know why with everything with climate change and how, cause I've been paying attention to the weather a lot. Cause even um, in Chicago last week, there was a tornado that was near O'Hare Airport Whoa. and um, near, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the other airport. Ugh, I lived there for Pete's sake. But anyway, those things are kind of unheard of where you see something close to the city 
where you're going to have a tornado near the city like that. And so with all the climate change and every, all this wild water, I keep thinking about the dinosaurs. Sure. And I keep thinking of, is this like going toward the extension of humankind? Is this where we're up against? Well, uh, and, I, like I said, 10%, a billion people are going to be uninhabitable or going to not have any habitation where they normally live in like the next 40 years. That's, that's extinction. Yeah. That's like a tenth of all humanity disappearing. But we, it's almost like we have to have those events because I just rewatched this thing on World War I and over a million people died. Mm -hmm. And if you look at World War II, like we only lost 500,000 people. And if you look at uh, the Civil War, we lost 500,000 people. And we don't, we as Americans don't seem to have these mass population purges with war anymore because it's so mechanized and we're so removed from it. I mean, people are still dying, but it seems like... And there's a war going on every day that we don't even know about. That we don't even know about. Yeah, and, and, and here's the thing with that as well. It, I don't think, and I'm just speaking for the U.S., we don't learn from history. We don't pay attention to history. Right. Like, you know, for example, you're talking about World War One. Well, that's also the same time as the pandemic as well. Right, that yeah. first flu pandemic. Sure, 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 sure. You know, a lot of people died from that too. And there was also climate change going on around that time. Right, because of the mass um, industrialization yes. and, the, and, the, and there weren't and laws in place yet. And there were more dust storms, there were more dust bowls. Right, because they were pulling with the westward expansion and when we kind of took over, we, people made their houses out of sod. So they were taking the natural earth and instead of tilling it back into itself and then planting crops they were actually using the whole sections of topsoil to build their sod houses out of mm -hmm. and so when you pull up the topsoil you, you just keep it was it just wasn't the right climate anyways anyways yes yeah. so we we're constantly messing with our environment yeah and not doing jack shit and about not it. yeah we're not restoring and we don't know how to restore and even if you look at who we are as people, we're all so sad. It's all about like, I don't know. It's um. I will say that um. Make sure you just carry a jacket and sunscreen with you at all times, and that includes you, black people, as well, because the right. sun is getting a lot, lot stronger. And I, uh, yeah, it's I just pay attention to these things. Yeah. Oh, there is something interesting. Yeah. Um, this is for my hip-hop fans. So if you are a Tupac fan, they're actually reopening the case to his 1996 murder. Amazing. Um, there, there has been a warrant that was served. Um, I have not read all this, but um, so this is from ABC News. So police searched a home in Las Vegas on Monday night. Um, for a murder case of Tupac Shakur. Um, there was a warrant served in Henderson, Nevada on July 17th as a part of an ongoing Tupac Shakur homicide investigation. Mind you, he was murdered in 1996. Did, is this his mother bring up the case again? Is that what happened? No, I don't think... His mother is deceased oh. now, I believe, yeah. Um, so let's see. Do, well, do, do. justice for Tupac. Fuck yeah. So Ain't no problem with that. 
So what they're saying is there's no, no arrests have been made to the case. We know that. And then months later on March 9th, 1997 rapper, uh, notorious B I G was murdered and that's still unsolved. So yeah. a lot of people have been saying that there's might be connected to, yeah. uh, Tupac's murder and it remains unsolved. But, um, so basically they have reopened the case. There has been a warrant that has been issued. So, I'm one of the, I'm a big uh, Tupac fan. And I, I remember when he was murdered, I was freshman in high school, I'll never forget, and I cried like a baby. And so the fact that you have this case, this unsolved murder mystery, that was, he was shot on the La, uh, Las, Vegas, Las Vegas Strip. And he, there, were, there were witnesses, and no one has spoke out. So the fact of the matter that 27 years later that there is a possibility that they might catch the person make it it, it 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 for those who are fans it's kind of like a breath of the fresh air because these cases of uh a notorious big and tupac all of our conspiracy theory minds have been thinking that these two are connected sure. and it could be someone from the from the record company or someone in the inside so yeah or someone from the government for god's sake don't let that's another don't thing. let smart black people have influence and say things and dear god cat well can you imagine having the having the ear and having the voice that mm -hmm. that coalesces people into thought. And I mean, I could absolutely see that it would be. That is also another conspiracy theory that a lot of us are thinking, because if you know, if you listen to Tupac's music, um, it, he does talk about like, you know, you know, positivity in the black community. Even in one of the lines, he's talking about Bob Dole. He's talking about police brutality. And then he did have a target on his back by the uh the u.s government so and the plus if you know what is, you, you is, don't, exactly his you don't mom, get to have any you. influence thank you you his, don't get to be a black person who have influence on people without the government being having underground spies in your fucking organization they can't because their their fear is so rampant exactly so there also can be that's also a big speculation yeah. that a lot of us in the community were we're thinking because we know come on now just like what Pam said, you know, if you're not dancing a jig for Massa, mm. you, you know, if you're putting positive energy and stuff into the community and others, that is going to be a problem. And plus, you when you influence those white suburban kids, they ah, really don't like that. That's, yeah, exactly. They really don't like. They're that. They're like, you can dress, you can have the fashion, so that we can make money off of you. We talk but about the violence and drugs, right? But don't listen to the don't listen to the positive message. Well, I uh, justice, justice for Tupac, justice for Notorious B.I.G., and God bless justice for Trump. Let's, let's <laughs> no, seriously, yes. let it put that man in jail. He's a liar. He's a thief. We we have to be able to say our our, our president. Ah, he's a bad guy. Put him away. So he is. So now the January sixth committee are looking to get him under arrested. Great. So and he incited oh. just did the opposite of what Tupac did. Instead of inciting positivity in the community, he incited violence a, and a riot, a coup. a coup against our own people because he didn't get his way because he's such a little baby and he didn't get his way. And he's like, you know what? I really won. And it's just, this isn't the way everybody. And then he incited a fucking riot of violence mm -hmm. in our nation's capital. And he needs to take responsibility for his fucking words that did that. Well, I didn't say anything. Yes, you did. Right before you sent them on a walk. It was almost like he was marching behind them like, go ahead, go storm the capital. Our democracy means nothing. 
And and then on top of that, Hat left his vice president literally to hang. Uh, <laughs> to and and now you have because Pence is running as well. He's not. Gross. He's not getting Gross. no. And and you still have Pence soft shoeing around Trump. I'm like, all mm, these mm, like mm. this man basically said, hang Mike Pence, like, and you want to soft shoe about this person that almost murdered you. Mm. So, I mean, hopefully we will see justice with this old bastard. Um, but we, we are about to head into a presidential, a presidential election. <sighs> Where is and Kamala? Can, can Sleepy Joe just die so Kamala can be the fucking president and then we can just keep horses in midstream? I don't, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, Sleepy Joe is old and maybe it's just time to take your forever dirt nap, bro, and let Kamala be the first person of, woman, person of color, president of the United States. Dear God, she's absolutely qualified. I don't like what she did with the whole drug stuff and the, when she was, anyways, but still, she's a I mean, dear she's, God, let a woman. Young. She's young. She's lucid. She's and <laughs> she can work with people. We know this. So I I would it would be ideal is if Sleepy Joe could take his forever dirt nap very soon <laughs> and then Kamala could take over and be the president and do some great things in like a year, do something amazing. And then we'll all be like, Yay! Just keep being the president. Just keep being the president. Yay! And then everyone will vote for her and it'll be perfect. And even maybe some Republicans, they're like, she's oh, a I woman, doubt that. and no, she didn't, she didn't fuck it up. Look what she did. Sleepy Joe was kind of a kind of a kind of a sleeper. Kind of didn't do anything. But look, this Kamala, she can. I don't know. I'm I'm down. That's what I would like to see happen. Not that I want people to die, but I really want a woman president and and a woman POC. Oh, God, God bless it. Like finally, let's make some change in this world. Um, it would just be. Amazing. The the depressing part about the upcoming election is it's going to be the same bullshit from 2020. And again, I'm going to hop on the Democrats because they have not given us any other candidates. Right. So the candidates who, who are running on the Democratic side are Cornell West. I, well, actually, I think Cornell West is running on the third party side. Um, but we know how the third parties work in it this just country. Doesn't work. Yeah, you can't third party. Um, not John F. Kennedy Jr. Bobby oh. Kennedy, Robert, Robert. Ke okay, Robert Kennedy Jr. is freaking nuts. And and this Mark Neuer has an incredible new joke about it. It's so so funny. <laughs> he says, um, he he says, see if I can do it verbatim. And this is Mark Neuer. He goes, yeah. So I want to kill myself, but I want to do it in a really creative way. You know. So um, I think I'm gonna be like I'm gonna be like the Kennedys. I'm just gonna run for president. I'm going to be a Kennedy and I'm going to run for president because that be that seems like the best way to kill yourself because you're going to get shot in the head. Did you know that oh, people God. don't like Kennedys like the government doesn't like them. They run for president and they get shot. And he has this great joke about it. he goes, yeah, I want to you know, how I want to kill myself. I want to be a Kennedy. I'm going to run for president and I'm going to be <laughs> shot from three different locations from five different guns with one shooter. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but anyways, Mark Neuer has a great, great joke about it. I didn't do it justice. You can go to Cobb's. Uh, and see him headline on August 13th. That's a Sunday. And uh, it's going to be a great show at Cobbs with Mark Norrie headlining, hosted by Emily Rudolph. A lot of friends from the station on that show. Also, Honiton Ortiz, Ernest Evangelista, and Spencer Devine. All really great friends of the station, all on that Cobbs show Sunday, August 13th. I just wanted to give him some press. That, that's good press. Yeah, you bet. Um, oh, and then we have Sunday Streets Valencia on yeah, July Sunday 30th. Street. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the 30 
yeah, it's going to be fun all day. We're I, I tell do have some good news through. going back to the oh, news. Um, so we have been harping about the whole student, cancel student loan debt mm-hmm, and stuff. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. this is the agreement. So, of course, the Supreme Court, because the majority of them are conservative assholes. Yeah. Um, so the Biden administration that canceled $39 billion of student loans Oof. for uh, only 804000 borrowers and so basically um the biden administration announced 39 billion or 39 billion in automatic loan forgiveness i hope i'm one of them to 804,000, according to an uh to a july 14th press release the wave of student loan forgiveness is separate from the forgiveness plan outlined in august of 2022 that the supreme supreme court recently struck down assholes so the department historically um, cited historical failures in the administration of the, the federal student loan program that inaccurately represented the number of qualifying months counted toward forgiveness for borrows on income-driven repayment plans. Under Secretary James Cobb said in the statement that millions of borrowers had earned loan forgiveness but never received it. Huh. So um, this is who qualifies for the Biden's administration student loan forgiveness. This is important. Those who have been on repayment plans, hold federal direct loans or federal family education loans have completed 20 or 25 years of qualifying months are eligible for forgiveness, depending on when the loans were um, originated, the type of loan borrow and the specific type of plan. It's mostly borrowers who were in the income contingent repayment who will really, who will receive the forgiveness. Um, other repayment plans have not existed long enough to reach the qualifying of 20 or 25 year mark income based repayment has existed since 2009 and requires 25 years of payment to reach forgiveness pay as you earn launched in 2012 and required 20 years of payment for forgiveness oh i see what they're saying they're saying that you had your loans you've had them forever you continue paying them but you can't get out from underneath them so let's say you spent a hundred you had a hundred thousand dollar student loan so you've got your five hundred dollar a month payment You've been paying it for 20 years Mm -hmm. and you still have like $50,000. And you're like, I've been paying it for 20 years. So this would be the Gen Xer. Yeah. So so these would be the Gen Xer generation. Sure. That will, which. It's just, it's who it should do. It should take care of. That's because that's who's under the, so many people have not been able to afford property, have not been able to. There's so many things they have not been able to abide, and the American dream was thrust upon us. Go to college, get that loan. You're gonna be, you're gonna get a home. You're gonna get a great job. Everything's gonna be great for you. Woo. Lies, lies. <laughs> so there's so many people who haven't been able to move ahead because they've been held behind by the student loans that they were told in the beginning we're gonna push them ahead. You don't so, own so any student loans, do no, you? No, everything. I, I've I've always for paid for all my education in cash. Yeah, so. just because I don't. Um, I don't even have any credit cards. I, I just don't believe in credit because I think it's an American. I think it's a construct that it's it turns you into an indentured slave. It says you I believe that if you want something, you get the funds for it and you purchase that thing and you experience that thing or you do that thing or that thing exists. I don't believe in buying things on credit. I don't believe in taking out loans to try to make more money. I feel like you have to have what you have and then move from there. And I know that some people are smart with money and they're like, I'm going to take out $20,000 and then I'm going to do this with it and then it's all of a sudden it's more money. And I'm like, ah, I'd rather have a product or something I've built or something and say this is, anyways, I don't understand. 
society, money, economy, capitalism. I'm a socialist. I'm like, just do what you can. Everybody wins. If everybody worked as hard as they could at what they wanted to do, everybody would be taken care of. Well, I know with, I'm one of those people that still owes. Thank God I'm not completely in debt. I still owe about 10 G's. Um, That'll be forgiven. That's great. Yeah. But I haven't been paying on 20 years because that's not me. So now here's the problem. This is so this is a good thing, yes. But here's the other problem. So they there's the millennials that are after that who mm. we know if you went to college after 2000, student debt, student student interest rates skyrocketed under the George W. Bush administration. That's when tuition went high and it's just been going higher ever since I know of since I graduated high school in, in 2000. Yeah. So that means my generation, who are the ones who are in, we're in our 40s, some of us are in our 40s, cannot invest, we cannot buy homes, we can't right. large purchases or what have you. Yeah. So that does leave us out as well. Congratulations to those Gen Xers who are able, who are benefiting from this because I wouldn't want to be stuck for 20 30 years of paying student debt. Right. You know, but it also seems this qualifies for those who went to grad school or what have you and ah. stuff. Because think about it. If you went to college, say in the late 80s, early 90s, much cheaper in contrast to when you went in 2000 True. or 2010. Yeah. Um, and plus you had more, um, not well, not more scholarships, but you had more, uh, I guess more not loans. What's a grant? That's that's I, what I'm thinking. I didn't get it. I just worked my ass off and got it paid and paid in cash because I have a different work ethic than other people. Um, but I am excited that something is happening in that it's realm. A move. But education should be free if uh, you want yes. it. I feel like we shouldn't be putting a cap on people's ability to succeed. And we constantly do that for many different reasons. But they just cut out affirmative action. Of course they did. Yeah. So, white woman, that means you too are going to be stuck. Well, the ERA was never passed. The Equal Rights Amendment. So women are still underpaid, and it's the the whole capitalism is a red herring. It's 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 built capitalism. Some people, very small group of people, win. The majority of people lose. lose. But yep. the idea is that anyone could win at any time. It's like so. It's 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 kind of a snow job. But then it's also we can mitigate that by in our inside ourselves by saying society says we need 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 but what are our needs and what are our wants and how do we get those two things balanced honestly i feel like i can't if someone gave me more money i honestly wouldn't know what to spend it i haven't i don't i wouldn't know how to be it i know what you do you would probably invest and move to greece no i <laughs> maybe that's what i do um okay so here um let's check the uh do you you know the busboy saga right Boy. The busboy saga. Oh, 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 homeboy so, that you met, skate or surfer dude. Surfer skater. Oh, right. Dude. Yeah, that I met on update. the bus. That then I, I, I pulled a Lenny. I pulled a Lenny from the of mice and men, and I took the baby bunny and I, I, lo I was like, I love this baby bunny, and I squeezed it and I pet it, and then I murdered the baby bunny. So yeah, I murdered the baby bunny a couple weekends ago, because I was like, we, I was like, this baby bunny exists and it's so cute. I want to pet the bunny. That's I the want the bunny. bunny. I was like, I have 24 hours in this weekend. I want the bunny to come over. I went, pet the bunny, 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 come here. So I tried to get the bunny. I did some multiple. I did some. I did some. I did some very incorrect. You know what doesn't work? Manipulation. You know what doesn't work? 
ultimatums. I said, you've got this 24-hour window, and this is it. I have such limited time. I haven't seen you in this many weeks. Please, blah, blah, blah. It didn't work out. So I was like, fine, wash my hands of it. But then he called me. He was drunk. Anyways, talk to me. But I was like, okay. So I smooshed the bunny. The bunny was dead. The bunny was dead. I thought the bunny was dead. I removed it. I removed him from the. I removed all his pictures that he'd sent me from my thing. I erased his number from my thing. So actually, for a while, it said his name, and then it said, "Do not call. Do not text. <laughs> you killed this <laughs> rabbit. You killed the bunny. You ruined it. Stop being so needy. Back off. I killed the bunny. It, it said stuff like that. So last Thursday, I'm preparing for a show I was doing somewhere. I was I was great. I was host. I show, hosted a show in the Emeryville Mall with Hella Funny, and it was a clean show. And there were two hundred people there, and I killed. And I got to do clean material, and I loved it. And it was fantastic. That was last Thursday. Thank you, Hella Funny. Thank you, Hannah Ortiz, for booking me. Appreciate you. Kate Chang killed it. Anyways, this is just comics. He called me at four thirty in the afternoon. I'm sitting there, watching alone, right? Because I I I finished it, but I was downloading. And I look at my phone and it says his name, do not call, do not text, blah, blah, blah. And it's scrolling through and I'm like, oh my God, he's calling me. What could he possibly want to talk to me about? So I, hello? He called me and he apologized. Okay, okay. Okay. And then I subsequently apologized. I also said, man, you don't owe me anything. I barely know you. We had, you know, there was a magical time. I... Tried to force the magic more. I, my time is very valuable. It's very succinct. I'm busy every single day of the week. It's very, I put time aside. That's my fault. I shouldn't have done that. We didn't. He said, I'm sorry. I wasn't making my intentions known. Very nice conversation. And then he said, I'm going out of town for a week. And I was like, okay, great. Don't be a stranger. And um, yeah, so that happened. And then, because I knew he was going into the woods, the next day I just tended, texted something innocuous. It, it, I wait, waited over 24 hours, and I texted the innocuous quote, because uh, I know he's going to the woods. It said, I went into the woods to lose my mind and to find my soul, John Muir. The, the Muir so I, post, I send that to him, and then he responds. Takes a while, but responds. Two little messages, very cute. Uh, and it was fine. I was like, ah, oh, that's a, it was being poetic. Oh, that's a path I could endure something like that. Um, and then I had a written, I written a poem and I took a picture of it and I sent it to him. He hasn't responded yet, but that's okay. He doesn't need to respond. He's on vacation, hanging out with his friends. Just sent him a poem just because I wrote a poem and he's a poet and I thought this is innocuous and it's a good poem too. It's a good poem based off William Burroughs cut-ups. Anyways, so I think I think I might be back in the mix. I don't know. We shall see. No, don't send them anything else. No, I'm not sending anything. <laughs> I'm not sending anything. I'm not communicating in any way. And I just, I hate that that's the way things are. Is it's like you have to be this weird distant person until you actually get to know someone. It's a game. I don't like it. I don't, yeah, I never liked it either because it's just like, it seems like you like me. I know I like you. Where do we stand? This, you know, this dance that you have to do. I haven't seen his face in weeks. It's like I don't even care anymore. That's my whole thing is that you're either in my life or you're not in my life. 
I either see you or I don't. I don't fucking text you for weeks. If I, I, I mean, I pro I think I still have, a, even though I erased all his pictures, I think if I saw him on the street, I would still recognize him. But maybe not, you know? Yeah. I would hope so. I would hope that I would because I was initially, like, that is why I was like, whoa, that guy. Like, I was super attracted. Like, that that through say. It's not love. It's like, wow, I'm attracted to that person. That's a person that's my type. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I see that all the time on the bus. They're just not into me back. <laughs> like, I see guys on the bus all the time where I'm like, oh, damn, that's my type. And my thing is also from, like, I remember I recall, like, being in the dating world. If someone pops up weeks later and you haven't heard from them, what have you, to me, in my mind, that means, like, they have some kind of fondness with you. You sure. know, you're not basically you weren't ghosted. It was maybe life happens or what have you. So that could have been it. But the fact that weeks is, and I'm talking about through a man's point of view, because males are not the best communicators as we know. And so the fact of, Hey, I'm just seeing how you are, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, weeks he, later, he reached out, which means, and he said, he said in the phone call, he said, I think about you a lot. I oh. talk about you to my friends a lot. And I said, oh. that's flattering. Oh. That was my answer to that. That's flattering. Oh, okay. But he hasn't seen, I mean, I don't think he's followed my Instagram. I told him what it was. When I sent him the little message of like, dude, I'm done. Because I was like, either come and see me or I'm done. But that's, but that's me and that's one of my things. You want to be in my life? You want to be on my fucking list? You want to be mm -hmm. the boy that I'm interested in? Then you got to at least put yourself in my, in my realm. You can't just like Don't bullshit me. me. Yeah, don't text me every once in a while. Like, See me, come out and see me do, I do something fun seven nights a week because I run seven shows a week. Now, I can get guest hosts and I can do other fun things and I can get booked on other shows too, which I am. But the fact of the matter remains that I have fun things to do every night of the week. So come on out, join me. Yeah. Do a little, it takes this much effort. It's I'm doing it anyway. And it's not like you have you're a cl you have a clingy personality when it comes to that. You know, it's just like, hey, you know, if you want to come through, come through, especially if you're here in town. But yeah. it seems like he does. He does travel. He, 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 well, I think it's summertime, so he's traveling. But it's it's true. And I also have drink tickets all the time. So <laughs> seriously, I mean, not here. Mondays at the station is different, but um. Tuesdays, OMG, I get drink tokens. Wednesday, Mars Bar, I get 10 free drinks to give away. Thursday, Bar on Dolores, I have ubiquitous free alcohol to give away. Friday, we're here. Again, doesn't matter. Saturday at Atlas, I could buy him lunch. Sunday, Danker Side of Comedy at the Barbary Coast. Free weed. Like, every <laughs> day of the week. Just trying to find ways and to lure him in. I'm just saying. I'm just, but that's the other thing, is that I've been booked almost every, I've been booked like every other Sunday on Mark Neuer's Hella Funny Show, which is at Mission Cannabis, on 20th Street, which is a great cannabis shop. You guys should go. They have this amazing upstairs smoking lounge, and we do this great show up there. And they gave us this gift bag on motherfucking Sunday that had, like, two huge, not joint, they were pre-rolled uh, blunts, but with hemp wraps instead of stuff. Ew. And this um, fucking 25-milligram THC drink. And um, this, oh, my God, this all these... Um, fucking dab chips this i mean crazy right like so much stuff in that bag oh and anyway so i have i so that's for for me it's hard because i'm like dude 
I'm a fucking catch. Come out. You want to party? Come out any night of the week. And it's a big, like, Party and poetry. Comedians fucking party. Not, not that's like, we're party. But I could. Well, it is a good sign that he has reached out. So we yeah. shall see how this saga continues. The bus boy. I yeah, know. the bus boy. <laughs> and not because he works in a, he's a gardener, but because. We met on the bus. We met on the bus, which I think is perfect because I love you. You don't hear it's stories like that uh, often. You just mostly hear like, oh, yeah, we met on Hinge. Yeah, 2.30 in the morning, 14 bus. Thank you, Muni. I, I just hope it comes. I just hope that. He comes. I hope he comes back into my life here, like literally, li- like figuratively and literally. Yeah, yeah. all of it. All, all of the above. Jesus, right? I mean, come on. What do I got to do? <laughs> oh, I have a potloaf for you if you want to take it home. I baked this morning. Ooh, so yeah, that could be part of my wedding present. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. You, 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 you missed my I'll wedding. You a I'm so sorry. 